Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. I'm asked periodically to review books from one of my publishers, Columbia University Press. And when they asked me to take a look at Derek Leto's book about entrepreneurship, I felt it was the most compelling, interesting, and deepest study into entrepreneurship that I've ever read. Derek has a unique career. He's been a CEO of a global publicly traded semiconductor company. He's the founder and CEO of an innovative and valuable startup. And he's now a professor and scholar of entrepreneurship and innovation. He is a professor of practice at the Keller Center for Innovation in Engineering Education at Princeton University. He's the author of Startup Leadership, How Savvy Entrepreneurs Turned Their Ideas into Successful Enterprises, Building on Bedrock, What Sam Walton, Walt Disney, and other great self-made entrepreneurs can teach us about building valuable companies. And this is the book that I'm talking about here, The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value. He's published hundreds of articles on innovation, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Derek graduated summa cum laude from Princeton, and he received his PhD from Stanford as a Hertz Foundation Fellow. In this podcast, he shares what it really takes to be a successful entrepreneur. I know you've probably heard advice like this before from entrepreneurs or people who have studied entrepreneurs, but we're talking about insights from a study of 4,000 years of entrepreneurship. What people often get wrong when they think about entrepreneurship, lessons for you to apply to become a successful entrepreneur, and what are the positive but also the unexpected negative consequences of entrepreneurship in society. Ladies and gentlemen, Derek Lido. Derek, as I've shared in my intro, your latest book is one of my favorite books on business broadly and entrepreneurship particularly. So thank you so much for spending the time to be here with us. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to open up with the same two questions I ask every guest. The first is, if you can complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. You know that I love playing with my grandchildren. Ah, How many grandchildren do you have? I have four from two to five years old, and they are a blast to play with, and I look forward to every weekend. That is lovely. I have three kids, and they're 12, 14, 16. That two to five-year-old age was just, ah, you're the center of their world, and they're just happy and joyous. Second question, I ask this of everyone, and I always get a different answer, so whatever you say is right. What's your definition of strategy? To me, strategy is a vision that people around you feel is going to make them successful. Ideally, it is something that they're excited about, they understand what their role is, and that is robust to potential outside disruptions. I love that. So it could be a purpose, it could be a plan, it could be any of those things, but it convenes people around that Vision. The vision. I got it. I love it. Which brings, I think, us really nicely into the topic of your latest book, which is entrepreneurship. And before we go into entrepreneurship, I'd like for you to outline for us what is an entrepreneur? What's your definition of entrepreneurship? Actually, I had to derive a new definition to write this book because what I found is that there's no shortage of definitions of entrepreneurship, but they tend to all be contextualized into the present day. So you go to a dictionary and it'll say an entrepreneur is somebody who started a business 
business or runs a business. The problem is that business, as we think about it, is something that got invented in the 1800s. Before that, companies and businesses were structured differently. And that then queries the deal if you're going to look to entrepreneurship and how it emerged, because it could have emerged a long ways back. So what exactly are you looking for? What sort of behavior? I found that universally, so through all time and in all cultures, you can spot an entrepreneur for sure categorically, yes or no, by looking for three things. One, are they self-directed in their actions? Are they the ones deciding what to do? And that includes what rules to follow. The second thing is that they have a skill that's coveted by others, particularly those close to them. So they've got people wanting their skills, but they're gaining value for those skills by enticing others to engage in exchange. So they are performing their skill, but they're also engaging in, you know, haggling or back and forth to, hey, how much is this worth? And you can spot those three things in archaeological rubble if you know what you're looking for. So it works everywhere. Yeah, tell us about that, because in my understanding, as I think you alluded to, the corporation, as we call it, wasn't created until maybe the Holland... um, Oh, yeah, the VOC. Yes. But you go back to 4000 BC and you talk about a limited liability partnership. So tell us about that. What were those original structures? I was just shocked by what I found, how far back it goes, and how sophisticated entrepreneurs were from the very beginning. So here we go back 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC, and they've got a form of writing, cuneiform on clay tablets. And we found a lot of these clay tablets. Most of the clay tablets we found are talking about transactions, literally between entrepreneurs. And they're haggling over price or deciding I'll get a better price if I wait or if I sell it here or there. So conversations that we would relate to as business people. But we also see that former entrepreneurs are banding together around a successful entrepreneur and giving that person money to go and sponsor new entrepreneurs, young people, to get out on their own and start new enterprises. And they're formed in such a way that it's exactly a limited liability partnership. You can see partnerships with up to 51 limited partners. And what's really interesting is the way they split the profits between the limited and what we would think of as the general partner is one-third, two-thirds, which is not unlike the way it's split in today's limited liability venture capitalists, where you get 20% of the profit, but you get 2% per year for 10 years. So that's 30%. So 30-70 is a common split, and they were doing one-third, two-thirds 4,000 years ago. Fascinating. But we admire entrepreneurs today, the business idols that we talk about, you know, Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and Bezos and Jobs and all of that. But how were they perceived 4,000 years ago? Who were they? Well, it depended on the culture. So in Mesopotamia, where they had these venture capitalists, they were considered a very important part of society, but they weren't considered part of the elite. They were known as essential, and there was a lot of deference to them, and they were given a lot of latitude in regulating their own transactions. So they were their own judicial body. 
But then you compare that in ancient times to the entrepreneurs in Egypt. Ancient Egypt had entrepreneurs. And that's surprising because in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh was this godlike person that owned everything. So there shouldn't be any entrepreneurs. But entrepreneurs show up everywhere. And they show up filling in what the pharaoh couldn't supply. And there will always be entrepreneurs in those societies, no matter how communistic or centralized they are. The societies need these people to provide the additional wants and needs that the rulers can't provide. Yeah, I noticed that. Like, I got to do a series of talks, 20 speeches for J.P. Morgan Chase this year for their small and medium-sized business clients. And what I was really left with was just the vibrancy, the creativity of the opportunities that they seek to fill. And I guess in those gaps of the large companies or the pharaohs or the authorities, I mean, go to some other countries and it seems much more centrally planned. There's a certain level of robustness of the diversity of the ecosystem of entrepreneurs in some environments and less so in others. Picture this. Let's think of a world where entrepreneurs didn't exist. This would be a world without computers, smartphones, video conferencing. It would be a world without planes, trains, and automobiles. It would be a world without medical devices, without electricity, without lights, without even most clothing. Matter of fact, you take away entrepreneurs and everything that entrepreneurs have created and life wouldn't be worth living. They are the greatest agents of change on the planet. They're much more profound than all the governments, all the religions, all the big businesses. In some ways, we've paid too little attention to the entrepreneurs and how they have had this massive impact controlling so much of our daily lives. And yet you also talk about the impact of entrepreneurs isn't always positive. I mean, you go back to, let's say, the original mortgage crisis, not the 2008 one. He talks a little bit about the less desirable impacts of entrepreneurship. So if we didn't have entrepreneurs, we also wouldn't have most cancers. We wouldn't have type 2 diabetes. We wouldn't have workplace injuries. We also wouldn't have inequity and inequality. We wouldn't have deforestation and pollution and all of those things. So the deal is that with each of these innovations that we covet come these unintended consequences. Society is very focused on all the exciting things that entrepreneurs give us, all the new things, but these unintended consequences tend to accumulate and then really get you. The mortgage, which was invented by entrepreneurs over 4,000 years ago to help people pay their taxes and not have their homes taken away from them. So they offered, hey, how about if I loan you the money to pay your taxes and you'll give me your homes only if you don't pay. Of course, a lot of people didn't pay. And so this started accumulating and became a big problem for the rulers back then because they couldn't raise a big enough of an army and their tax base kept shrinking. So the rulers started issuing these edicts, forgiving all past debts, restoring the lands, and making the entrepreneurs give back whatever money. The entrepreneurs obviously didn't like that, and so they started figuring out ways to get around these edicts. For example, I'll loan you money, but you have to adopt me as your son, and so then I can take over your lands that way. 
we've been playing this cat and mouse game about mortgages and the unintended consequences, the homelessness and the massive debts and the like for 4,000 years. We still haven't gotten it right. And we won't because entrepreneurs are so shrewd and savvy about getting around the rules. We need to understand that and frame our relationship with entrepreneurs so that we take that for granted and that we actually get entrepreneurs to help us solve the problems that they cause. So then how do we do that? How does uh, society or government then incentivize entrepreneurs to lean towards the positive impacts and less so the negative? By giving them the credit and their due and realizing that they're better at regulating themselves than we are. So, for example, if we had an institution like a National Academy of Entrepreneurs, like we do National Academy of Science and the Arts and all of that, entrepreneurs would aspire to that. If you look through time, entrepreneurs care more about recognition than they care about maximizing profits. Entrepreneurs are not the profit maximizers. Big businesses are profit maximizers. Entrepreneurs care more about the recognition for their achievements. And we don't give them enough of that. Now, it's not that Elon Musk needs yet another article to be written about Elon Musk. It's all the other entrepreneurs that we're not giving them their due. And in doing so, that would create a significant better alignment. In addition, we should realize that entrepreneurs and professionally managed big businesses are different beasts and need to be incentivized and regulated differently. Big business split off from entrepreneurial-run businesses in the late 1800s because the scale and scope of railroads and the like were too much for a single entrepreneur to realize effectively. And the financiers, who were entrepreneurs, basically moved out the founders and brought in this newly envisioned professional manager who wouldn't get diverted by personal interests in other things and dabble in too many areas and keep focused on building out the railroad tracks and reducing costs. So these are like the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, JP Morgans. Is that kind of the class of entrepreneur that you're talking about now? So that class of entrepreneur was the last class of great entrepreneurs who could just barely keep hold of the enterprises that they started with. But Carnegie sold out to J.P. Morgan, and J.P. Morgan inserted professional managers in U.S. Steel, and then that became the new paradigm. So there's something I want to believe, and I can find anecdotal evidence of it, but I don't know if I believe it, which is that there's a shift underway now of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs increasingly pursuing, say, profitable solutions to societal problems, as opposed to being more driven by self-interest. I'd love to know what you think about that thesis. Is that true or... That is true. And the world is starting to benefit from that. So you can see significant positive impacts. Just parenthetically, there are ancient precedents for that. The first social entrepreneur that I was able to find was actually Pythagoras, who created basically what we would think of as a self-help academy and taught people how to be at one with the universe and the like for altruistic reasons. So Pythagoras, in coming up with his theorems, was always trying to explain the universe. And he felt that he had a deep enough understanding of the universe that if humans 
musicians could mimic these harmonics, these musical elements that were manifest in the stars and the like, that they would become immortal and wind up as a star or constellation one day. And so that was what he was offering. The people was universal well-being if they would come and attend his academies and learn what he knew. Fascinating. Huh. I was thinking immediately of Ben Franklin was sort of a self-help entrepreneur as well with his writings. I have so many more questions for you, but we are reaching the top of our time with you. There are three more questions, but one of them is, I don't know anyone who has studied entrepreneurship with as extensive a history as you have. And so the question I have for you is, what are the requirements or characteristics or intelligences or capabilities, or what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? That's what I've been studying for the last 12 years in trying to help people be successful entrepreneurs. First off, you do have to be self-directed. So you have to have enough confidence in making your own decisions that you're not going to be swayed into mediocrity, into ultimately doing what everybody else does and therefore doing something that nobody really cares about. Number two is that you do have to be willing, if not excited about promoting what you do enough that you entice a lot of customers. You cannot be a shrinking violet or whatever would be the appropriate term for you know somebody that's shy and reticent to ask for the order or ask, will you buy this? And so those things are throughout history, the standout things that literally every entrepreneur shares. Yeah, I love your vision of entrepreneurship or the sense of entrepreneurship I get from your work as being someone who convenes people around something, right? That people see a possibility in their vision. It is social entrepreneurship, not only in the social impact, but bringing people together. Again, I have so many questions that we don't have time to ask all the questions. What's a question that I didn't get to ask or what's something that you didn't get to say? Well, it's really important that we recognize that this phenomena is bigger than we realized and that it's something that we need to pay attention to because we need them to help us solve these problems, these social entrepreneurial challenges, and we need to make sure that the unintended consequences don't further accumulate and cause existential challenges. So this is a topic that we don't talk enough about. Yeah, it seems like there's a pendulum. It's either entrepreneurs are the creators of the future or entrepreneurs are, you know, very kind of one-sided views, I think, of entrepreneurship. So how can people follow you, learn from you? Certainly, they should buy and read your latest book. If they're at Princeton, they could take a class with you. But how else can people stay connected with you and learn from you? I'm very accessible on LinkedIn, for example. I'm happy to connect with anybody. I have a lot of people that ask me questions and, you know, I do my best to answer them. They can follow me on Facebook and they can email me at my Princeton public email and I'll answer them as well. Well, Derek, again, I wish we could have several more hours with you. I found other stuff online with you. And so people who are interested can find you and definitely encourage them to read the book. And thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for spending some time to share it with us here. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.